Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. The scripture reading today is from the book of Romans, chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and now how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us here, that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning, that you would help us to believe that you have seen to this meeting. Uh, that we are here right now because you have something to teach us, something you want us to trust in. So give us grace to be present to your presence right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you might not want to sit near me in a restaurant. Uh, My problem is, is in settings like that, not that we can go to restaurants necessarily right now, but in those settings, I tend to hear everything. Um, I tend to hear not only the conversation from the person across from me, but often the small conversations that are going on at all the tables around me. Um, It's a part of of my diagnosed condition of having ADD. And, um, you know, it doesn't always serve you well. Uh, I can remember as a kid playing Little League Baseball when I was a pitcher, every jeer from the stands, every single comment about me if I was starting to walk people and not do well, I heard all of it. And uh, it wasn't necessarily good. It can be a real frustration. I know a few years ago I was on vacation. I was sitting around a pool And I heard a mom's frustration with her son. Um, She said to her husband these words, and I was really bummed that I actually heard these words. I understand some the massive frustration that raising kids can be, um, having raised four. But she said to her husband in exasperation, I'm done with him. I know she was frustrated, but again, it was horrible to hear it. I wish I hadn't. In fact, every time I saw her after that, I had to keep myself from judging and to forgive her all over again. In the Apostle Paul here, there's a group of people he's worried about, Paul's own tribe, who have largely rejected Jesus the Messiah. And the question being asked, and the question Paul is agonizing over is, is God done with them? Paul's repeated an answer 
in the book of Romans is by no means. And in fact, Paul would answer the question, is God done with you in the same way? By no means. And so let's jump into this complicated passage. Really, it's a part of a number of chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so first of all, we've already kind of mentioned it, Paul's conundrum and ours. I mean, the question of Romans 9 through 11 could fill 20 libraries and probably fills more like 2,000 libraries. And here's Paul's conundrum, and it's posed right there in the very beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. Has God rejected God's people? There's a Greek particle here indicating a negative answer will follow. Perhaps, quote, it's not really that God has rejected God's people, is it? Is closer to the meaning. Even referring to Israel as God's people is the strong suggestion on the impossibility of any notion that God rejects Israel. Paul is basically agonizing over the prospect that God's plan for the redemption of the world, in fact, as Romans 8 tells us, all of creation, would not include the sons and daughters of Abraham, to whom, as the start of Romans 9 tells us, quote, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarch, and in Paul's mind, the Messiah. If nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ, as Paul states in Romans 8, Does us, in that passage, include unbelieving Israel? Or is unbelief perhaps one thing, the one thing that can separate someone, perhaps an entire people, perhaps even God's own people, Israel, from God's love in Jesus Christ? Scholars tell us that Romans 9 to 11 is actually structured as a lament psalm. And Paul is not simply lamenting over Israel, but over God, interesting, huh? Over God's righteousness. Paul knows that God's own reputation and righteousness, or another way of putting it, covenant faithfulness, is at stake. Because Paul's conundrum is God apparently seeming to be unrighteous to Israel and righteous or covenantally faithful instead to Gentiles who are receiving Jesus in large numbers. So Paul will have to show that the same God who spoke covenant promises to Israel has not now abandoned Israel by opening those covenant promises to Gentiles who have become part of Israel's Messiah and therefore heirs of the covenant inheritance promised to the seed of Abraham. Now, lest we think this is an ancient conundrum and not ours, I would say it's our conundrum as well. If we are like Paul, and I know not not all of us who are watching right now are, some of us are in process, but if we are like Paul and have tasted of the goodness of God and the gospel, has staked our lives on a resurrected Jesus, don't we all have people in our lives near and dear to us that God has seemed to skip right over with the good news of the gospel that we so dearly love? What are we to think and pray and do with this? Big question. Short sermon. God help me. (laughs) So let's look at this. Paul's argument and what might be ours as well. So if you are after a straightforward black and white answer, Paul is actually not your man after all. He spends three chapters taking us into, shall we say, creative exegetical arguments that literally bend the mind. 
This is not the time to unpack all of them. I'll suggest books later if you would like, but I want to point you to three categories of hope that drive the way Paul thinks, and I think is an invitation for you to do the same. The first category is the character of God, especially as Paul now does a drive-by of Israel's stories of God in Romans 9 through 11. Paul traverses the vast expanse of Israel's history, arguing again and again that God preserves a remnant, or God provides surprisingly, or God hits reset, or God makes the case that in the face of widespread disobedience, all is not lost. Instead of simply trying to patch the problem, or even trying to find a viable practical solution, he first thinks about God, Paul does. What is God up to? What has God done in Jesus? What does that teach us? To be sure, he concludes with a doxology in which he hands the problem back to God, which is not a bad idea, but not before thinking long and hard about where God is in this current crisis. Paul paints a picture of a creative, creative, surprising, faithful at all costs, God. This has to matter. You can hear him saying, quote, It doesn't sound like God just to forget about his promise. God is always making a creative way forward. Unquote. In fact, God will even use your disobedience to show mercy to all. Verse 32 says, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. More on that word all and the way Paul uses it in just a minute. But do you see what Paul is doing? There's a method in the madness that Paul reasons. God will use the disobedience of one group to make room for the other group to eventually welcome back in the other group. It makes perfect sense to Paul. Because Paul thinks that God has kind of always made a way and is making a way. You all have to look to to, uh, Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul writes there in verse 20, And now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish and abundantly far more than we all can ask or imagine. I love that Paul puts that in there. That was actually a theme verse when this church plant was started 24 years ago, City Church. We used to say there's nobody here, so we have to kind of believe that God can do more than we can even imagine This is how Danielle Schroyer talks about it in her book, Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place. She says, God has decided to stick with it. The animal skins God provides to clothe Adam and Eve is God sticking with it. The rainbow is God sticking with it. The covenant is God sticking with it. The exodus is God sticking with it. The wilderness is God sticking with it. The promised land is God sticking with it. The prophets are God sticking with it. The judges are God sticking with it. Jesus is God sticking with it. Those disciples are God sticking with it. Pentecost is God sticking with it. Revelation is God sticking with it. If we go to the depths, God is there. If we rise to the heavens, God is there. Where can we go from God's presence? God is sticking with it. God is sticking with us not in a neutral way either. God is not just along for the ride or ambivalent. God is with us 
And that presence is at the heart of every good and perfect thing, every grace, every single breath of life. I believe God has you here right now because God is not done with you ever. Your failure, your losses, your wounds, your choices have not cut you off from God, made you second class in God's kingdom, or relegated you to being cast out of God's loving presence. You are here now, and God continues to pursue you in love because God, after all, is love. Secondly, Paul has the ultimate surprise always as the lens through which he views this question. And that surprise is the resurrection of Jesus. This has changed everything for Paul. He has seen a resurrected Jesus, and now all bets are off, except the bet that in Jesus all things are new, all things are possible, and that God, as Paul reasons in Romans 11.15, for if there Israel's rejection is the reconciliation of the world, the open door for the Gentiles, What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? There's resurrection again. Paul takes the well-known first century Jewish hope of Israel for the resurrection of all the righteous at the end of time and says that is still in play. Because as we know now, this is what God does. Bringing life out of death is how God plays. And Paul is banking everything on that. He looks looks really no further than himself as an example. If you go back to the very first parts of chapter 11 in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then Paul reasons this out as himself as an example where he says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul is saying, if this can happen to me, It can happen to anyone in God's good time. Note well, Paul's own experience plays no small part in his ruminating on theological conundrums. His experience is sacred to him. Your experience is also sacred. Paul believed in the authority of his experience, we might even go as far to say. And in fact, we could go back and not spend time on it now, but look at how they originally, the the disciples, reasoned their way towards the inclusion of Gentiles by an emphasis on their experience of the Holy Spirit. We have been taught to downplay our experiences, I think, at least I was in my background. Paul leaned heavily on his, and I encourage you to do the same. Paul would say yes to this question. Does God still guide and lead? Absolutely. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Absolutely. That's how Paul would respond, that God still does guide and lead through the Spirit that Jesus promised would guide us into all truth. And thirdly, Paul uses the word translated as all with what we might call reckless promiscuity. I'll just give you a drive-by. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's God's own power bringing about salvation for everyone, all, that word in Greek, who believes, first the Jew and then the Greek. Romans 3, all, both Jews and Greeks, 
under the power of sin. Romans 3 again, no one, literally, all flesh, is not is justified by observance of the law. Romans 3, all have sinned. All are freely made right by God's grace through faith. Romans 5, and this is scandalously the case, the stipulation of faith slips away when Paul contrasts Adam and Christ. Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, Paul says, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification, justification and life for all. That's Romans 5. Romans 8, conceptually the word all is used and that, entire, that the entire creation will be redeemed. In Romans 10, 11 and 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is of all and is generous to all who call on him. Romans 11, 26, all Israel will be saved. Romans 11, 32, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Romans 15, 7 to 13, anticipates the doxology of Jew and Gentile together in response to God's action in Jesus Christ. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 133 could scarcely know just how good God knows it is for humans to dwell together in unity. Paul seems to be saying in those passages two things at once. He is saying this is for all who believe, and he says, this is for all, period. Which is why Paul is so confounding to critics and scholars and to, frankly, our modern lust for certainty. Which is why Paul, it seems, throws his hands in the air in verses 33 and 36 and says, this is in God's hands. Who can fathom it? When I teach this in a class, I usually have someone who says, but only Jesus can save. And I say, yes and amen. And who are you to tell Jesus whom he can and cannot save? Are you going to tell Jesus he cannot save someone, regardless of creed? Jesus can do more than you can imagine. Jesus can save whoever he wants. Jesus is Lord. Based on what I know about the character of God, especially as God is revealed in the story and resurrection of Jesus, and the promiscuous all that seems to find itself popping up everywhere in the New Testament, I'm gambling on grace. Which is why I've said for 20 plus years what I learned way back in seminary in 1988 is that every Christian should be hope so universalists. I think Paul leads us well here when coming to this question. And that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I think a good dose of humility is in order. Because here's the thing. It turns out that the question of Israel, or you, or your friends, or your family, your loved ones, your children, is not a question about them at all. It's a question about God. I think that's a great place to leave it. I'm reminded of the incomparable Mary Oliver in her poem, Mysteries, Yes, where she says, let me keep my distance always from those who think they have the answers. Let me keep company always with those who say, look, and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads. Paul bows his head in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments 
and how inscrutable his ways, lost in wonder and praise, as Paul. And the last thing here is Paul's transformation and ours. So the first thing I would say to you, maybe someone's answering, asking right now, so do we need to believe? Is there a call to believe? And without question, there's an invitation and a call to believe. Make no mistake about it. The urgency of believing, of placing faith in the work of Christ, I believe remains. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible would say. We can discuss everyone else, but what about you? So the New Testament invites everywhere to do things like believe and place trust and place faith and throw yourselves into the waiting arms of God's mercy. But in so doing, we trust God with how God is working that out in the lives of others, whether they were born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, or Kabul, Afghanistan. Secondly, there's a call to extend mercy. I want you to notice how Paul essentially ends his long discourse before breaking into praise. This sentence, so that God may be merciful to all. It's always worth noting who is making that kind of a statement. Paul, a man who is committed to sacral violence in the name of God, a man who was certain that faithfulness to God meant murdering and committing violence against the other who disagreed with his tribe, is now a man who speaks of scandalous, promiscuous mercy for all. Mercy, triumphing over judgment, as James wrote about. Paul was a stone thrower in his past, and now we might call him a stone catcher. He has been arrested by the mercy of God. And this is our calling as well, I think, especially today. With the ongoing revealing of white supremacy and racial violence and how much it is baked into our very American soil and culture, now more than ever, those who have tasted the mercy of God are surely like Paul, called to be stone catchers. Friends, the big idea of Romans 9-11 through is a God that is concerned with bringing the way of Jesus to the whole world where everyone is valued, where there is grace, forgiveness, and mercy, and where everyone is loved, where those with power and privilege use it to further the values of God's kingdom, to protect the weak, to welcome the stranger, to work for justice, and together we will do this. If you're looking for a church, it's always looking for how we might improve our role in being stone catchers. This is it. I encourage you to jump in to make this community a community of the beloved. We're in safety. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ might be nurtured, grown, and together might flourish. And to make room for how that will play out differently in each of our lives. Today, as we close, let these words wash over you. We live in such anxious times right now. What horrible update pops up on our phone next? You know, we have a, a global pandemic, a polarizing election on the horizon, a nation turned upside down. There is anxiety and unrest in the system, and it threatens to render us paralyzed with fear. So I would invite you, if you feel comfortable doing so, 
close your eyes and hear these words from Teresa of Avila. May today there be peace within. May you trust God that you are exactly where you were meant to be. May you not forget the infinite possibilities that are born of faith. May you use those gifts that, gifts that you have received and pass on the love that has been given to you. May you be content knowing you are a child of God. Let this presence settle into your bones and allow your soul the freedom to sing, dance, praise, and love. It is there for each and every one of us. Amen.